Well, you know, in 1981, Billy Graham came to our campus, um, <laughs> came to our campus at uh, San Jose State University, and he came and he spoke for a week. So every day he spoke. I didn't get to hear him every time. Uh, one time when he spoke, one of the days I missed, he had a testimony by a professional soccer player. And from what I understand, it went over pretty big, except for the next day, they discovered he was not a professional soccer player. He had lied to get on center stage. And the Graham Association is very good about not letting that kind of thing happen. They vet their people very carefully. But the guy had slipped through the cracks. And suddenly there was a question of whether he was even sincere about his faith. What's the credibility when a guy lies about something like that? Now, in our world today, we're so big on the numbers that we are not always so careful to authenticate whether people are true believers or not. But that wasn't true with the ancient world. And we're going to learn about that today as we kind of shift directions. Last week we were talking about uh, the persecuted church, and today we're going to talk about the church in the world. Because the church was persecuted after Stephen was stoned. Stephen died, and there was this major persecution, the first big persecution the world has known among Christians. And they fled, and they got out of Jerusalem, which was in the district of Judea, and the very next district was Samaria, not some area, but it's literally Samaria was the name of it. And they went into Samaria because it was the closest place to go, and then they began going all over the world. And so we're going to pick up and take a look at that and see how important it was for them to authenticate when people were truly new followers of Christ. So we'll be looking today at Acts chapter 8. We'll pick it up at verse 4 and go through verse 25. So I'm going to read that to us to get us started. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, 
Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So we see that you know, many received the Lord in Samaria. But underlying all this is this theme that they're trying to, to determine who are believers and who aren't. How can we authenticate their faith? And we see this first uh, at the first and last verse that the church preaches wherever it goes. Two believers preach wherever they go. And it's interesting that this whole passage is sort of bordered with two book, you know, kind of two bookends. And the first one in verse 4 and the last one in verse 25. And they're both talking about people telling others about Jesus Christ wherever they go. So in verse 4, it says that wherever these people went in the world, they told people about Jesus. And in verse 25, it says that after John and Philip, you know, Philip and John, or Peter and John had been there, that they were preaching as they went back from Samaria back to Jerusalem. And the language in the Greek there indicates that there were more people with Peter and John, and probably Philip joined them. So Philip, Peter, and John went back to Jerusalem. We believe that because in the next passage, we find Philip in Jerusalem. So here's the question of the day. Is there any place where we should not Proclaim the message of Jesus Christ any place. Jesus said, remember, in chapter 1, verse 8, that he was giving the church, that would be us in the future, power to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. So that means it's there for every place. Is there any place that's harder to talk to people about the Lord than others? I see a couple people shaking their heads. Yeah, right away. There's some places that are harder, right? We live in Oakdale. And what happened when that person from Sonora had the audacity to paint the fake, you know, water tank at the north end of town, the colors of Sonora High School? We got pretty upset, didn't we? And we made sure we turned it to the, the red and gold right away. The, we were Mustangs again. So there, but there's tension sometimes, even silly stuff like that, the rivalries. What if I said San Francisco, who would you think of? 49ers, if I thought of their rivals, who would you think of? Come on, guys. L.A., right? San Francisco and L.A. don't like each other. That's kind of historic. Why? We don't always know. But, you know, we have kind of these rivalries that make up. Or how about things like, you know, people that have problems with the, some people are looked at as sort of the, the stuffy, pretty boy, pretty girl, rich people, and the other people are the trash people, the poor trash people. Now, when I say those things, it even gets you upset, some of you. Because maybe you've been targeted in one of those areas before, and people have hurt you. And yet, you see, everybody needs to hear the Lord, and you never know whose life God's going to put you in, do you? You never know what's going to happen. Um, Sometimes it's hard to tell your own family, right? Because they know you too well. You don't want to talk at work, you might lose your job. You don't want to tell people at school because that's not cool, right? And we have all these different reasons, but really, We're supposed to tell everybody, and that's the example given here, because nobody liked the Samaritans. Nobody liked Samaria. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons Jesus said to go first to Samaria, because it's a logical place to go to, and I think that's why it took them so long to get out of Jerusalem. They were training forever, three years. They had 10,000 people, but nobody wanted to go to Samaria. Because it's like going to Sonora, right? You know, who wants, who wants to see those guys? Sorry, Kathy, I'm very sorry. There's a couple Sonorans here. I've got to be careful. But, you know, who wants to see those guys come to know the Lord even, right? Because the, the picture was in the old days that Samaria, the district of Samaria and Judea and Galilee, they were all made up the kingdom of Israel. 
And at the heart of that kingdom was the tribe of Ephraim, and in the middle of that was the city of Samaria. And they were very powerful, but they had this civil war, and they split. And from the time of the civil war, they still had more people and more power, but they were also more rebellious. And so God, after many warnings, sent in the Assyrians from modern-day Syria, and they conquered them, and they took the people. This is brilliant. They just took the people out of town and moved them around. And so they no longer could rally together anymore. And so we lost 10 tribes. We can't trace them. And they left some Jewish people there, but they got mixed. So they considered themselves Jewish, but the Jewish people considered them half-breeds. And there was a lot of political tensions, and it goes on and on. But you can see where there was disfavor. In fact, if you were from where Jesus was in Galilee, and you wanted to go to Jerusalem, you would go around Samaria, even though it was much quicker to go through it. Because if the Samaritans identified you as Jews... They'd throw rocks at you, and they would torment you, and you never knew what they were going to do. Didn't like the Samaritans. And yet they reached out to them. And we'll see that God prepared the Samaritans for just that. I don't know what your experience has been, but I found through the years that God has worked in all sorts of situations in my life. There's a time and place for everything, right? Uh, You don't just go up to people and tell them about the Lord. Maybe you do on some occasions, but that's probably not the norm. I found that usually people come to me. You know, at work that happens. You say, well, yeah, dummy, you know, you work. (laughs) You know, this is what you do. Of course they're going to talk to you about the Lord. They know you're a pastor. But I mean, even when I've had other jobs, on vacation, um, at different parties or social occasions, on buses, trains, planes, it's amazing how people come, will just start talking, and they'll mention something about God. Or they'll tell me that they're having some kind of problem or I'll sense if I just ask this question, I wonder what they'd say. And I can't tell you how many times I've thought, I don't want to bother. I don't want to talk to them right now. Or I just don't know what they'd say if I said anything. Have you ever done that? I I do that. I had one of those situations just this last week. Somebody was basically talking to me and I thought, I could probably talk to them about the Lord right now. I thought, you know, I got to get, I got to get my sermon done. Um, you know, have you ever had that happen? I said, I better go home now. And then on my way home, I just kept kicking myself the whole time because I had an open opportunity to talk to these people. So we just need to be ready and willing for whatever God's going to do. And he will bring that to pass. And that's what actually happens here with the Samaritans. He prepares them. And we're going to see this in this next section that uh, Philip preaches and performs miracles. And he, he does this to authenticate his faith. And God has already prepared the Samaritans to hear it in several different ways. Um, First of all, this event is in a city, and they don't tell us what city it was. But it may have been in the city of Sychar, and if it wasn't, there are two other cities that are nearby. Sychar is important because do you remember John 4? What happened in Sychar? Who was it that Jesus met at the well? Met the Samaritan woman. And after that, she told others. And it sounds like Jesus actually had a fan club already based in Samaria waiting for the rest of the story. They weren't worshiping him yet. They didn't realize that he was the God-man himself. But they did know that they believed in what he was about. And they wanted to know more about him. So there was this movement already there waiting for them. Furthermore is they had some things in common with the Samaritans. Because the early followers of Christ were also outcasts. And the earliest followers of Christ that were persecuted, remember we talked last week, the main people that were being persecuted was a minority group within the church known as the Grecian Jewish Christians. 
They, they weren't even called Christians yet. They called them usually believers or disciples. And they were the first ones to be persecuted because they were from a foreign land and they didn't speak Hebrew and they brought their cultural baggage with them and so they were looked down on. So the Samaritans kind of could connect with them. And by this time, the Samaritans heard, had heard the message of Stephen. Stephen said that the Jewish people thought that their land was too important. Samaritans thought that too. Stephen said that the, that the Jewish people were adding to the teachings of the law. They thought that too. He talked about how they made their temple too important. The Samaritans felt that way too. Samaritans believed in the law of Moses. They didn't actually believe in a Messiah, but they believed that another like Moses was coming. So the stage is all set, and in enters Philip. Who's Philip? Well, what we know about Philip is this, that there's two Philips. Okay, so you don't want to get confused and call him the wrong Philip. There's one Philip, which is the Apostle Philip, who's one of the leaders on the, of the apostles. But we know it's not him because the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, and they later send Peter and John, but they don't send him. So this is another Philip. He is one of the Magnificent Seven. Remember we talked about the Magnificent Seven? And then you guys all went and saw the movie. Did you all go see the movie afterwards? I haven't seen it yet. Anybody see the movie? Is it worth seeing? A couple people say yes. Most people don't, didn't go see it. So. Um, so the original Magnificent Seven were seven men that the apostles named to go out and minister to this minority group of Grecian Jews. And they were probably Grecian Jews themselves. And the leader of them was Stephen, and he was stoned. And so the mantle of leadership then therefore falls to Philip, who runs for his life, as most of us would under those circumstances. And he finds himself in Samaria, and you know, because you want to get out as fast as you can. That's the fastest way out. And as he gets there, he starts talking to people about Jesus. And they want to hear more, and they want to hear more. And he starts talking to more people, and they're very, very receptive. So he tells them the message. He tells them about the Christ. He explains to them that there is a Messiah and he is like Moses. And he goes on and he explains under the particular circumstances how they can know Jesus. And in condensed terms, what he basically tells them is what we tell you regularly, that they need um, to admit that they're sinners in need of a savior. Now they would agree with that. They need to believe that Jesus, now they believe in Jesus. They know about him. They believe that he died on a cross. They believe that. But now he's telling them that he rose from the grave. And then they need to choose to follow him, put their faith in him alone. Are they ready to do that? And so they have this before them, and many are responding to what he says. And part of that is he authenticates what he's saying by performing miracles. Now, it says that Stephen performed miracles. We don't know what they are, but we know the miracles that he performed here. What did he do? He cast demons out. One of the reasons we have this sermon at this point is because of the Halloween season. We thought it would be sort of thematic, right? Casting out the exorcist is on. Are there such things as that? I think there are. And that's what he was doing. He was casting out demons and he was healing people of physical infirmities. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there's a 400-year period of silence where God kind of pulls back his hand between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years. Put that in perspective. How old is the United States? Seems like we're pretty old, huh? But this is like almost double our age. That's a long, long time. And during that time, the spiritual forces of darkness sort of ran rampant. And so this period of time may well have been the most spiritually dark period of time in history. 
And if you're living in a place like Samaria, it's mixed with all these different backgrounds and religious beliefs. It's probably a hot seat, a hotbed for spiritual darkness. And that is a big topic. We're blessed having come from a country with a rich Judeo-Christian heritage. And yet we see this happening. Um, even more so, I think, in more recent years in our country. We see some of these events. That's why we make movies about them. But it was happening more regularly then. So when he comes out and he starts performing these miracles, essentially he's, it's God and his miracles taking on Satan and his dark magic. Who's going to win? Notice that somebody who has demonic power cannot cast themselves out. And they can't heal people. They can curse people and cause frustration or pain and do bad things, but they can't do the good things. And so he's trumping them at every term. He's, he's doing better than they, the other guys would do. And he's got their attention because not only is he making these claims, but he's backing them up with his miraculous work. And so people begin to listen and they're happy. By the way, that's a natural principle. When people come to know the Lord and people get healed, they're happy. And so they have a lot of joy. They're really happy. And it affects everybody. And so these people begin to come forward and give their lives to the Lord and get baptized right away because this is the real deal for them. But there's another guy that comes along and his name is Simon. And he's called the sorcerer. In the Greek language, they never call him the sorcerer. All they say is instead of practicing magic, he conjured. It keeps saying he conjured. Twice it uses that word. To conjure is to use incantation and curses. That's the language that you would use for a sorcerer, somebody who thought they were into dark magic in this case. And he was very powerful. The people, rich people and poor, educated and uneducated, they all looked at this guy as the, the local celebrity. He could do things that nobody else could do. And he boasted of himself. And the language that's used here is not so much that they recognize him as the great power, although they, they obviously would have, but that he said that's who he was. The language he uses indicates that Simon was saying that he was either God himself or more likely his chief representative on earth. And they'd better follow what he did. He was undoubtedly a very powerful, very wealthy man at this point. All eyes were on him, but he could not overcome what Philip was doing. And so he actually turns and becomes a follower himself. And he gets baptized and he follows him all around. In fact, the word for following means he adheres to him. He can't get enough of this. He's watching all the miracles that Philip is doing. So we say, how is this relevant for us today? It is, is it important for us when we tell people about Jesus Christ that we are able to authenticate our faith as being real. Is that important? Well, how do we do that? One thought I had is after the service today that maybe we could go down to Oak Valley and just empty that place out, you know, just heal them all. Um, is that okay, Dr. Blank? <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, he's got... <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, that's not what we would normally do in our culture. Though that could come up at some point. It's not what we would normally do. But we still validate our Christianity. We still authenticate our faith by how we behave, don't we? And if we say that we're a believer and we don't act like one, what are people supposed to assume, right? Uh, so it, they would expect us to pray. 
And in fact, one of the most powerful things you can do with someone who doesn't know Jesus is to pray with them. Because that's something that they just aren't accustomed to seeing you actually talk to the living God. And when you pray for people and they see your prayers answered, I don't know how many times people have told me that played a role in them turning to Christ because they saw the power of God in their life as you prayed for them. Such a major thing that we do. The study of our Bible, being able to answer the questions that they have is so important. Um, our love for God is bringing them to church with us, telling them about our faith. Often they really want us to tell them about their faith. What are you all about? They expect that from us. Um, and the way we behave, you know, our life should change. If they've known us for a while, they should see that, you know, we're not drinking like we used to and we don't talk people down and we're not sleeping with our boyfriend. You know, those kinds of things are things that they, if they're going to be your worst critics. I remember when I was in college, the guy that held me the most accountable to my Christian faith was my unsaved roommate. He'd say things like, I didn't know Christians did things like that. And so they're watching, and so we need to authenticate our faith by how we behave, and we need to say we're sorry when we blow it. There's something else that's interesting here. In this particular case, another person comes to know the Lord who's a significant person. And there's something that goes on there. One of the things that authenticates our faith is when other people come to know Christ. When I came home and I give my life to Christ, my family and friends kind of were like, well, we've heard of this kind of thing before, but now it's happened to him, and we know somebody. And then it became kind of a domino effect, and a number of people came to the Lord because they were hearing this for the first time, and they knew other people that it happened to. The same thing can happen with a famous person, because rich and famous people don't need God. And when suddenly they turn around and they say, we do need God, that gets people's attention. And it can be a testimony. I mean, we don't always tell our stories, but we can tell stories of other people, too. And it can be effective when we tell stories of somebody that's well-known, who's genuinely given their life to the Lord, and there's been changes in it. And in this particular case, that at least seemed to be the situation at this time. And it got a lot of people interested because it had at least had an impact on this celebrity, Simon, who had the spiritual, the spiritual power. Even he seems to have turned over to this new power. The last thing that we're going to see is that uh, Simon, uh, Peter and John are sent to, um, you know, they, they basically come to, uh, to, con you know, con to, to show that this is real, um, to, to, you know, make sure that this is the real deal, to authenticate it, um, to say this is it. And so they come to town. And before they come to town, let's understand where they're at. They're still back in Jerusalem. They're still ministering to Jewish people. They're still training people for ministry. They're trying to resource all these people scattered you know, wide and far. And they're trying to do all of that. And understand that the world was in slow motion. Do you ever think about that in the ancient world? I mean, we're always like, everybody's fast, moving, moving, moving. But they're in slow motion. They, it took a while for them to get to Samaria. It took a while for people to hear this message. It took a while for it to spread. And now they've got to come back and get the message back to them. And probably in all likelihood, Philip's Skype was not working from Samaria. And he can't get on the phone and Skype the guys in, in Jerusalem and say, hey, this is what's going on. See, it was a different world, right? So this information comes to them and they're hearing it, but they can't talk you know, firsthand to Philip. He's too far away at this point. And they say, well, what's going on? All these people appear to be coming to know the Lord in Samaria. We've got two problems. One, is this the same salvation that we've experienced in Jerusalem? Or is it different? And how would we know? Right? You ever think about that? I mean, put yourselves in their shoes. This has never happened before. Is this the same thing? And here's the second question. It may sound kind of funny. 
but of course, if uh, you have a region that you don't particularly like in the world, maybe you understand it. Um, the big question is, can a Samaritan become a believer? Because to them, Samaritans in some ways are worse than non-Christians and more, worse than, I mean, non-Jews. They're almost worse than Gentiles, as they would call them. Could, is it even possible that these guys could have this happen to them? That, that, this seems strange to us. But what do they do? Uh, they could do nothing, and that would cause more trouble. Or they could wait for them to come up to them. That could cause a riot. So they decide to send two people. And it's interesting. It's, it's kind of instructive about how they do ministry because they have two guys that they send, and they send their two most famous guys, their most well-known spokesmen, the, spe- the speakers and teachers, um, Peter and, and John. And Peter is sort of the lead pastor, if you will, of the group. And yet, he doesn't make the decision. They make the decision for him. They make the decision as a team, as a group. Doesn't that seem kind of strange, the way churches are run? I mean, if you've been in churches, a lot of churches will, will have a church where the pastor makes all the calls, Right? Sometimes they even just call him pastor. You know, like in, in Rome, they just called him Caesar. No, it's not quite that powerful, but they, but, they, but they have this role of power. And they decide what's going to happen. But in the first church, it's a teamwork deal. They're working together collaboratively, and they make a decision. This would be the best thing to do, and they send Peter and John. The Peter and John that we encounter here are not the same Peter and John that we encountered early on. They're not as young and enthusiastic maybe as they once were. Peter's now in his early 30s. John is mid-20s, so they're still young guys. But I think their faces are, are lined, creased with lines of stress and, and hardship. What would it be like for you to see a number of your closest friends, even some of the people sitting next to you, murdered in front of your eyes? And know that it had happened because you had told them to stand up for Jesus Christ. How would you feel? They had to live with that. Peter, we know, had a family. They were probably getting older at this point. He's concerned for them. John may not have ever married, tradition says, but he was caring for his aged aunt, probably a woman named Mary, Jesus' mother. They had people they were concerned about that they were taking care of. And yet, it's interesting as we read about them, they seem to have more power and more peace than they had earlier. they're, They're kind of comfortable within themselves in their relationship with the Lord. And that speaks to us in in kind of a quiet way. So they come to town and they've got this problem. Um, Who among them have received the Holy Spirit and who haven't? They want to authenticate it. And the Holy Spirit is waiting back for this moment. God supernaturally holds him back so that it can be made clear. Now, we understand, we go to places like what Jesus says in John 3, that when a person comes to the Lord... They're reborn, and the Holy Spirit comes to live within them. And so my belief in this situation, at least, is that these guys already had the Holy Spirit in them. He just hadn't manifested himself. He hadn't made himself known yet. And so they're looking at these guys, and they're saying, they say they're believers. We've we've heard your message. We know, Philip, that what you told them is the same thing we were telling people. So now we've just got to say, well, how do we know for sure? They want to see some kind of manifestation. And they won't always do this. The church will do this the first time they see it in Jerusalem. They'll do it here, and they will do it again with the Gentiles. And once they're certain that everybody's kind of following protocol, this doesn't happen anymore. But it had to happen. They had to know for sure. How do we know for sure these guys are real? And what do we do about it? What would you do? They prayed. 
and they prayed and they put their hands on them symbolically saying that we're giving you the power of the Holy Spirit, but not supernaturally doing so. It was just a cultural thing that they did. And they just prayed for each person. And then the people responded and the Holy Spirit made himself known. And you know what? It doesn't say how. Have you ever noticed that? Some people assume that they spoke in unlearned languages, which happened the first time in Jerusalem. But it doesn't say that. They don't even mention language, and that would not make any sense because all the people in Samaria spoke the same language. They all spoke Greek. So that is unlikely. Some people think it was some other kind of mysterious tongues that they were speaking, but that's nowhere mentioned. So the things that we see, like are there other manifestations? Well, in, in Acts chapter 4, remember people actually when they heard about the Holy Spirit coming in their lives and they prayed to him, all of a sudden they had power to speak boldly about him in ways that were way beyond their spiritual years. They were speaking way beyond their spiritual years. So that seems to be one of the things that's happening here. And then Simon later says that they're performing wonders and miracles just like Philip was. You know what I think happened within the context? They were preaching and performing miracles like Philip all of a sudden. They were just new believers in Jesus Christ and all of a sudden they're performing miracles and preaching. Pretty wild, huh? And that was, they said, this is it. These guys are for real. This is the same thing. We did it. We know for sure we're on the right track. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And then comes some controversy. Simon comes along and it appears that he does not get the power. Not only that, but he wants to be able to get the power and give it to other people because then he'd really be powerful. There's different viewpoints on Simon, um, but I think the majority, and I am certainly in this camp, feel that he did not really come to know the Lord. You see, if, if the context here is how do we know if you are a believer or not, they're trying to authenticate their faith, then what do they find out? Most of these guys are believers, but this guy is not. We don't see any manifestation of the Holy Spirit in him. In fact, what we see from him is he wants to buy that power from us. Now, Peter gets upset. And sometimes we say that people, especially in leadership, should never get angry. But then that would mean that Jesus and Peter were in sin when they got angry. There are times, though they may be rare, that we should get upset, especially when somebody is claiming to be a believer who's not and, and possibly doing harm to the body like this. It, it's time to get a little bit upset. And he gets a little bit roiled. And you know what he says? J.B. Philip puts this in modern paraphrase. In our modern language, this is what Peter would have said. He would have said, to hell with your money. That's what he says. To hell with your money. He said, did you just say that? No, Peter did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but that is what he says. I mean, those are pretty harsh words, but he means it in a more literal way than we, when we say that he's basically saying, if you don't turn it around, you are going to go to hell and I'm for real. And he goes on to say, you aren't a part of our church. Because of the way you're behaving. Furthermore, you need to repent and turn from your ways and get right with God. Because I can look at your life and I can say that you are a man of extreme wickedness and just can't stop doing wrong. Those are what his words are saying. So you need to get it together. You need to not only pray, but the word he uses is you need to plead with God that you can get things right in your life. And he returns to, to him and he says to, to Peter, he says, well, why don't you pray for me yourself? 
And we don't know if he's saying, I can't pray for myself because I don't know the Lord, or if he's saying kind of in a sarcastic way, well, then why don't you pray for me? We don't know. And it just stops abruptly, leaves us with more questions than answers. But if we study early church history, they knew what was going on. And it seems clear from some of the earlier fathers, like uh, early writers like Irenaeus and Tertullian and uh, Hippolytus and others, that this guy was a bad dude. Most people believe that he was Simon Magus. And he became the arch rival and arch villain in early church history. Um, He would have several other encounters where he would battle with Peter. And ultimately, what's going to happen to this guy is um, he's going to start the Gnostic movement, the first cult in the church that John would have to fight against. So he's a bad dude and is sometimes called the father of the heretics. And if this is that man, then that helps explain for sure that he was not a sincere believer. Now, how is this relevant to us today? I think, first of all, it's relevant in that we need to know whether people are true believers. We need to authenticate people's faith. We don't just believe that they're believers because they say they are. People today would say, well, we need to show them grace. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say there's such a thing as cheap grace, counterfeit grace. We need to know for sure if this is real. We don't like this because it could affect us. It could be our friends and our family members that we want to believe that they're believers, but yet we don't see the evidence, right? And that's hard, but that may be reality. For us as a church, it means that when we baptize people, especially because baptism isn't as well understood today, we need to make sure that we really talk to them and interview them, make sure that they understand what they're doing before they do it, that they're legitimate. We can't always know. They can slip through, but we need to at least make that effort. When we put people in positions of leadership, it doesn't matter if we have a hole to fill. It doesn't matter if they're really gifted at it. They need to know the Lord, and there needs to be some evidence in their life. And if people don't have that evidence in their life, we need to pray that God would give us the assurance of their salvation. We need to pray for them and encourage them to come to church and get into a small group and get involved that they could move as we have in our core of discipleship, that after they supposedly become believers, that they connect with the church so that they can grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's a, that's a really important part. And we also need to do that with famous people, don't we? You know, we tend to make famous people our idols, even call them American idols sometimes, right? They are our idols and they become our gods in some cases and we can worship them. You know, we have, we have worshiped entertainers, we worship entertainers, we worship athletes. We used to worship politicians. We don't so much anymore, do we? But, but we have all these areas that we get caught up in, and sometimes we want to tell people that they're believers when they're not. Oh, I heard, I heard on the grapevine that so-and-so came to know the Lord. And we go tell people that is not true. Or sometimes they are believers, but they're just baby believers. They're just trying to grow in their faith, and everybody's watching them, and we need to just back off and give them a chance to authenticate their faith and get mature in their faith. And we can make too much of that because we're worshiping them too much. One of the things I think that's helped me, because I'm an idol worshiper in that way, or have been growing up, is learning to pray for people that are famous. Do you do that? You you change the whole equation when you begin to pray for them like they're a regular human being, and pray for their life, and pray for things that are going on in their lives. Maybe even write them a note, tell them, I'm praying for you, I'm concerned for you, I'd love to see you come to the Lord. And you'd be surprised sometimes some of the things that happen as you pray for them. A lot of these guys have everybody adoring them, but they don't have anybody praying for them. So let's look at some 
applications. It's just the applications really today are a summary of some of the things that we've talked about. You know, so the first thing is that we should preach the gospel wherever we go. Wherever you are, you need to pray about it and just pray, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to go and say whatever you want me to say. As you start off from the day, say, Lord, if you want me to speak to somebody, I'm, I'm yours. You, you, you work it out. And you look for those opportunities and you're sensitive to them. You don't always have to initiate a lot of it. In my experience is you just identify people, those, you know, the Oikos community you're in, that eight to 15 people in your life, spend time with them and conversations will go that way. I can almost guarantee you that if you have a conversation with anybody over a period of time, eventually the topic of God will come up in some way, shape or form. And so you just talk to them and you share the ABCs that we talked about earlier. You're prepared to tell them if they ask you the questions that they may ask you. The second area is that your life needs to validate that. And so I really encourage you to think through your life. Would your friends say, there's absolutely no doubt that this person knows Jesus Christ. Uh, they really love him. They act like you would expect a Christian to act. They behave that way. These, are, these guys are the real deal. Or would they have questions? Do you have questions about your faith? Are you doing the things that you ought to do? Has your life really changed? And if not, you could just be going through the motions like Simon was. Jesus himself says in um, John chapter 2, I think it is, verses 20, yeah, 2, verses 23 through 25, um, Paul, um, John himself re- reports that Jesus has these people that say that they are followers of his, but it later says that Jesus knows the hearts of men and he knows the ones that are sincere and those that aren't. Are you the ones that are sincere? That's uh, kind of a, one of those questions like, oh, that's a tough one. But it's one we need to ask ourselves and come and talk to others that do know the Lord if, if you're having struggles in identifying your faith, making sure that it's for real. And then, of course, with other people, we need to make sure, our family members and so forth. We don't want to preach at people or be rude, but we need to talk to people and, and pray for people and make sure that there are signs that they're growing in the relationship with the Lord, answer questions if they have any, be prepared to help them out. And famous people, start, you know, if you have a problem with famous people, start praying for them. Pray for them to come to know the Lord. Pray for God to work in their lives. Maybe write them a note. When I was a boy, my hero, the man that I worshipped, and I may have shared this before, was the world heavyweight champion, George Foreman. He won the championship when I was in sixth grade. I wrote him a letter asking for a photograph. And he sent me a photograph that was autographed and a letter back, which I'm sure was written by his publicity team. I didn't know the difference. I put, I put them both in frames and put them up on my wall for the rest of my childhood. Went and saw him train once. Didn't talk to him, but I saw him train. And I was a big fan until my freshman year in high school, he lost the championship. And then I was really, I mean, like, what do you do with that? How could that happen? And my hero had been defeated. And it actually played into me kind of struggling with what I believed in. But the story goes further than that because Foreman went on to lose a couple of years later, my senior year in high school, to Jimmy Young, went back to his locker room and had a deep spiritual experience, claimed that he had come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and turned his back on his sport at the height of his career. And that played a role in my life as a young man. I was listening to what was happening to him. When my wrestling career came to an abrupt stop at the end of my senior year, I began wrestling with thoughts about Jesus. And there were other friends that had known him, and I began to talk to them. Well, Foreman went on to become a pastor. And 
I went on to be a pastor too. I committed my life to Christ after that. Um, but he was a multitasker, so he boxed and became a heavyweight champion again too for a while, and then he went back to pastoring. I don't know the man, but from what I've heard, I think he's sincere about his faith. Um, and I, you know, I actually have written him and told him, hey, you know, you played a role in my life for me coming to know Christ. Just, you know, it was part of it, and I think you've had a good role in a lot of people's life. You've been a good role model, and I've prayed for you, and I continue to pray for you. And he called me up the other day. He said, Ron, man, it's always great to hear from you. Um, I want to give you one of my free grills. Um, but <laughs> I never heard from him. I'm never going to hear from that guy. You know, I know I never will. Until I get to heaven, I'll meet him. Uh, but it's amazing the impact that people can have on other people's lives in so many different ways. And so we need to pray for that. We need to pray for your own life that you're not always paying attention. I'm not always paying attention to those people around us that are watching us. Pray for the lives of other people that they would have an influence on the people around them. And even pray for the lives of famous people for the influence that they would have on others, that their faith would be authentic and could be seen. Because you never know whose life you're going to influence. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the example of Philip and for his faithful um, following you and preaching where you put him and how you used him in such a significant way. And thank you for the example of the apostles and how they made sure that people really knew you. They just didn't take it for granted and pray that we'd be more serious about making sure that our faith is authentic. Um, and, And I pray that our authentic faith would have an impact on people's lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen.